for reasons which I'm sure you can all understand. I'm not able to present this up in London today. But this is the final lecture in my series on utopian gardens. Um, and it's about this film, Silent Running, uh, and what I think it might be able to tell us about the current environmental crisis. I'm going to start by talking a bit about the film itself. And if you're watching the recording of this uh, and you haven't seen the film yet, I strongly suggest that you pause now and watch the film for yourself because I'm about to give you some massive plot spoilers. You have been warned. The film is, was made in 1972. It was directed by Douglas Trumbull. He had been the lead special effects guy on Stanley Kubrick's classic film 2001, A Space Odyssey. His father was also uh, a special effects expert. His father is actually one of the uh, cranky apple trees throwing apples at Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. He worked on that film. Um, this, as I say, was Trumbull Jr.'s first film, and uh, he wanted to... Uh, complete some of the visions that he'd had for 2001, some special effects that he hadn't been able to achieve, but he also wanted to produce a film that had human emotion as its centre in a way that he felt 2001 didn't have. Um, and this is the original cinematic release. You can see the cast and so on there, the original poster. The film opens with a shot of a man, this is Bruce Dern, swimming in a pool in what appears to be uh, a beautiful garden. Uh, as you can see, there are plants growing all around, this is a real image of Eden. Uh, it's inevitable. You have to think of, you know, Adam naked in the garden in innocence and so on. These kinds of images are very obvious from the beginning of the film. And uh, after he gets out of the water, he gathers some fruit and vegetables and he goes into his kitchen and he starts preparing them. And then there is a pullback shot as the camera zooms back and you see where this kitchen is. And the very first time you see this, it's quite a surprise. He's on a huge spaceship, the Valley Forge, uh, looking out the window, and you get this extraordinary sense of scale out in the vast deeps. They're out somewhere in the orbit of Saturn, a long way from the sun, a long way from the Earth. Um, and the garden that you see is in a dome. There are a whole fleet of these ships. Uh, each one has several domes. Each dome preserves a particular habitat um, from the indigenous vegetation of the Earth. And we learn that these ships are preserving the very last plants from the Earth, which is briefly described. There's a flashback and you hear a voiceover from when the ships were launched eight years earlier, uh, that one day these forests will come to repopulate our foul Earth. That's almost the only thing you learn about the Earth. We have no sense of why they've had to be removed, except that the Earth has no room for them anymore. So it's a preservation project. Uh, and there's something quite stunning about the imagery here, you get uh, a great sense of scale of these huge uh, domes, each containing a kind of its own garden, a miniature ecosystem uh, floating away out in space. I have to say there are all kinds of holes in the plot and the logic, not the least of which is why on earth would they put these ships so far from the sun, given that they're trying to keep the vegetation growing. But these are uh, things you don't want to inquire in too closely. You have to suspend your disbelief a little bit and just go with Trumbull's vision, uh, the poetry, the things he was trying to achieve. As an aside, the short reason they're so far from Earth is because he wanted to do special effects of the rings of Saturn, which he hadn't been able to do for 2001. But let's leave that aside. The main character, Freeman Lowell, played by Bruce Dern, is the expedition's botanist. And he hopes that the reforestation of the earth is imminent, that they're about to get the orders to go back to the earth and start replanting and re-establish indigenous forests on the earth. 
In fact, uh, when you know he, he mentions this to the other members of the crew, they say that he's dreaming. Um, and Lowell's response is, you don't think it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? What about the forests? You don't think anyone should care about these forests? What's going to happen if these forests and all this incredible beauty is lost for all time? And it's interesting that he calls them forests. I'll come back to that. The word is used over and over again. Um, uh, but when he gives this vision, this passion for the environment that he wants to see re-established, one of the crew responds, it's been too long. People got other things to do now. So they've forgotten. They don't care. They've moved on. Uh, and this is the thing that is driving Lowell crazy, that no one seems to care anymore. Uh, then they get the order. The project has been cancelled and the orders are given to destroy the forests. And again, there's a strange uh, plot device that for some reason the forests have all been rigged with nuclear explosions so that they can blow them up in space, you know, as you would if you were running an environmental project. But again, this is part of the drama of the whole thing. And I think given the period of 1972, fears of nuclear war, fears of ecological destruction are all wrapped into the moment when this uh, film is made. Um, as you can see from the image here, Lowell is not happy about this and he tries to prevent one of his crew members entering the dome and arming the nuclear device that's going to destroy it. Uh, they struggle, they fight, he kills his crew member um, and he actually kills all the crew members. There are only four of them, but he kills the other three uh, and he's left all alone on the ship. He, when the Ground control says what's going on. He fakes an emergency. We've had a major blowout on the, the, the bus and, you know, the, everything, the ship's out of control. I don't know where the others are. Uh, and the ship speeds off because he's flying it away from discovery. Um, but he tries to take it beyond, through the rings of Saturn, out beyond human control to preserve the lost forest, the very last dome which is left. Um, so it's, it's uh, an attempt to, to escape, and the title of the film actually refers to the way that submarines would engage in what was called silent running, where they would switch off their engines and jettison some debris and hope that the ships pursuing them would think that the submarine had been destroyed. So Lord does this, he jettisons some cargo um, and fakes this emergency and then goes dark and hopes they're not going to find him. And his only companions are the ship's maintenance drones, and he renames them Huey, Dewey and Louie. Uh, these lovely little squat figures, um, and uh, they become incredibly important to the story. And they are, to be honest, the very first cute robots in the history of cinema. They are the spiritual fathers of R2-D2 and BB-8 and all the other cute little drones that come after them. You may view that legacy with mixed feelings, but personally, I think they're great. Um, and uh, he teaches them how to take care of the forest. So you can see them here learning how to plant a tree. It's quite a funny scene. I won't spoil it for you if you haven't seen it. Um, uh, and then, you know, as he's keeping the forest going, working with his drones, he teaches them to play poker to stop himself going crazy and so on. Against all the odds, the rescue party finds him and they find the ship uh, out near Saturn. Um, and he's left with this dilemma. What the heck is he going to do now? Um, and so what he does is he rigs the final dome and sends it off into space uh, and he stays on the ship and blows up the ship. And Huey, the, 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 one of the drones has already been destroyed. Uh, Huey stays with him. Huey's been damaged by Lowell's own carelessness, so he can't go, um, with the forest. He's too badly damaged. Um, so Lowell commits suicide, taking Huey with him, taking the ship with him so that nobody will ever know that one forest escaped. And he tells Huey that when he was a kid, I put a note into a bottle. It had my name and address on it. And then I threw the bottle into the ocean and I never knew if anybody ever found it. And the film closes with this image of the very last, um, the very last forest drifting away into space on its own with a little lonely robot taking care of the very last forest. And we don't know 
whether it's ever going to be found or whether this message in a bottle is ever going to reach its deliverer. So it's an extremely sad, poignant ending to the film. And you may be wondering, what the heck has any of this got to do with the modern environmental crisis and how on earth have I been able to find some kind of message of hope in this, which I think I have. I will try and persuade you of that. But before I can do that, we need to think a little bit about what is a utopia. I've been using the word throughout these lectures, taking it for granted that we all know what it means, uh, and I've deliberately refrained from defining it too carefully. But I want to return to that now uh, and think a little bit about the history of utopia as an idea and try and define what it is and what it isn't. So George Orwell uh, said that the dream of a just society seems to haunt the human imagination ineradicably and in all ages, whether it is called the kingdom of heaven or the classless society, whether it is thought of as a golden age, which once existed in the past and from which we have degenerated. And some of those things, the kingdom of heaven, the golden age and so on, might be considered utopias. Uh, and I want to argue that they're not. And the reason they're not is actually quite interesting. So... If we think about some of the other kinds of perfect worlds, the medieval land of cocaine, which is a kind of peasant myth that there was a land of plenty where, you know, it rained cheese and nobody had to work and so on. This is um, Peter Broidel, the elders, uh, imagining of the German version of this. I cannot begin to pronounce the German name. But you can see here the glut of food, the people so bloated uh, that all they can do is lie back and sleep. You can see a knight in armour lying down with the peasants, there's no class division anymore, there's no work, there's no uh, inequality and so on. The detail in this picture I really love is the little egg at the front. It's not only ready cooked with its top off uh, and uh, a helpful kind of spoon or something in, uh, inserted ready to eat, it's got little legs so it actually runs around feeding people. <laughs> so it rem um, so that, that image of plenty, the, the kind of magical image of uh, plenty is one of the things uh, that is part of the tradition from which utopias develop, but are different from utopias. And uh, the idea of the land of cocaine actually survives into the 20th century in the form of, say, the Big Rock Candy Mountain. You probably know this song. Um, it was very popular in the 1920s. This is Harry Haywire Mac McClintock. Haywire Mac was actually his hobo name. He was a real cowboy, unlike most country singers, for br briefly, and he was a real hobo briefly as well. Uh, and he record, wrote and recorded this song. It's based on traditional songs, but he made it his own. It became a big hit. And it's uh, a kind of hobo's version of the land of cocaine. So, for example, it's the place where all the cops have wooden legs and the bulldogs all have rubber teeth and the hens lay soft-boiled eggs, just like in Broidel's vision. So that's one kind of perfect world. Um, if we look at Sir Thomas More's utopia, remember that it's More who originally uh, coins the word um, and writes the very first one, gives us the genre. Um, he made up this pun in Greek. This is the kind of thing you did when you were a Renaissance humanist. You made bilingual puns for the learned. The word utopia, if you spell it O-U, would mean no place. And if you spelled it E-U, it means good place. It would sound the same either way. Um, so it's the nowhere. It's the place that, uh, the good place that doesn't exist or perhaps cannot exist. And that ambiguity is an important part of the utopian tradition. It's one of the things that's distinctive about it. It's also, as a piece of writing, as a piece of literature, it's a traveller's tale. So it has a fictional narrator, Raphael Hithloday, who is supposed to have been one of Amerigo Vespucci's shipmates. And Amerigo Vespucci, of course, is a real person. And so you get this blending of reality and fantasy. Again, that's important to the utopian tradition. It has to have a plausibility about it in a way that the land of cocaine 
and the Big Rock Candy Mountain and the Golden Age and so on really don't. Um, Vespucci, of course, is famous for the voyage in which he establishes for the first time that Brazil and the West Indies, recently discovered by Columbus, or from European perspective discovered, uh, were actually not part of Asia, had Columbus had uh, believed, but were an entire separate continent. Um, and this is an image of uh, Vespucci discovering the New World. Um, if you're wondering whether writing's back to front, this is the original pen and wash drawing from which the engraving was made, and when it was printed, it would be transposed. That's why America is back to front here. It's not a mistake. Um, but Vespucci discovers America pictured here as a virgin continent, unspoiled, feminine, bountiful, uh, lush, ripe for the taking. Um, there are all kinds of unpleasant connotations to this image, of course. Um, but he describes his voyage, or it was described in a published letter known as the Mundus Novus. It's described, attributed to Vespucci. It's not clear actually whether he wrote it or how much of it he wrote. Uh, but it circulates widely and it brings knowledge of this discovery to wider people. And Mundus Novus, of course, means new world. And that's how America becomes known as the new world. And this is a considerable revelation to many European thinkers. Um, one of the people who's absolutely inspired by this is Francis Bacon, about whom I've spoken in earlier lectures. lectures. Uh, and Bacon, of course, is a proponent of a new, what he calls experimental philosophy, a philosophy that's not going to be based on ancient texts and ancient wisdom, but on experiments and exploration and finding new knowledge. As he himself said, the discovery of things is to be taken from the light of nature, not recovered from the shadows of antiquity. And if we look at this famous frontispiece um, to his Novum Organum, the new instrument, this is a, a, a kind of updating of Aristotle's philosophy for the modern world of experiment. This image captures a key part of what uh, Bacon is, is claiming. The pillars here are symbolically the pillars of Hercules, one of the wonders of the ancient world that stood roughly where the Straits of Gibraltar are now. And of course, they marked the end of the known world for the ancient Greeks and Romans. And the ship here is able to sail beyond the pillars of Hercules out into the unknown across the Atlantic to the new world because it has the magnetic compass. And this is a new invention which allows previously unimaginable feats of navigation, such as Columbus's, to happen, such as Vespucci's, of course. Um, and the quote from the book of Daniel at the bottom, multi transibit et augbitur scientia, many will travel to and forth and knowledge will be augmented, knowledge will be increased. That's the key claim being made here. And of course, uh, one of the things that's startling about the discovery of America, again, from a European perspective, the indigenous people knew it was there all the time. Um, from their perspective is it's not mentioned by Aristotle. It's not mentioned by the classical authors. It's not mentioned in Plato. It's not mentioned in the Bible. So the traditional sources of wisdom, the shadows of antiquity are not reliable. They don't know everything. And that undermines the myth of the golden age, the golden age, the idea that back in classical times, they knew everything and all we had to do was rediscover what they'd lost. That really changes because of America. So America and travel are two things that make utopias possible. The other thing that uh, really happens with America is the beginnings of what we would now call cultural relativism. And I want to talk a little bit about cannibals. If you look at this picture, just between the two figures in the background, there is a feast going on. And if we look at that closely, it's clear that what they're eating is a human being. And the man-eating myth, the notion that people routinely ate other people, is a key part of the way that Europeans demonize uh, those who they call savages, uh, people who are different from them, who have different morals and customs. 
Um, in fact, the word cannibal, as you may know, comes from Carib, uh, one of the indigenous groups in the Caribbean, where we get the name of that sea from. When Columbus met their arch enemies, the Arawaks, the Arawaks said, of course, the Caribs, they're terrible people, they eat people. Um, and Columbus believed them without any evidence whatsoever, uh, because that allowed him to take Caribs as slaves. Uh, slavery was forbidden under Spanish law at that time. Uh, unless the people were so inhumane and horrible um, that they were, were were too vile to be considered human. So it was very convenient to believe that myth. Anyway, cannibals. Um, this, uh, this image haunts the European imagination, particularly in relation to the New World, but actually to any part of the world where non-European peoples live. It's also, of course, the title of a famous essay by Michel de Montaigne in 1580, who used the indigenous people of Brazil to actually argue that other people's ways of doing things uh, might just be as good as ours, they're just different. So what we would now call cultural relativism is often traced to this moment back in the 16th century where Montaigne had the audacity to say, let's just look at these people from their point of view and not judge them from ours. So one of the things that's interesting is he uses gardening to make his contrast. He says that we, educated white Europeans, mostly men, describe the fruit which nature produces of herself and by her own ordinary progress as wild. But it is those whose natures we have changed by our artifice, which in truth we ought to call wild. Europeans' preference for cultivated fruit is a mark of our own corrupted palate. So we think we're so superior because we garden, because we grow and cultivate fruit, which is better than wild fruit. But in fact, all we're doing is distancing ourselves from nature, corrupting ourselves, getting out of step with the natural world. He says people have tried to gain power over great and powerful mother nature, but by our inventions, we have almost smothered her. And that I find a startling fall for 1580, uh, that somebody is already thinking, what the heck are we doing to the natural world? How are we distancing ourselves from it? And that's one of the strands in this talk, which I think is going to lead us up to thinking about the environmental crisis today. Um, he argues that its plants, uh, America's plants and its people, were more natural and, in case of the people at least, more moral than Europe's. And as a result, he claimed these people never die but of old age. And some of that, some people attributed that to the beautiful climate of Brazil, but in Montaigne's view, I rather attribute it to the serenity and tranquility of their souls, free from all passion, thought or employment, extended or unpleasing. A people that pass over their lives in a wonderful simplicity and ignorance, without letters, without law, without king or any manner of religion. So the very things that Europeans might offer as evidence of civilization, their Christianity, uh, their learning, their laws, their uh, kings of military power and all the rest of it, these things for Montaigne are perhaps all evidence of corruption. Uh, and that in fact, being free of those things might give you a much more pleasing, happy, contented life and you'd live longer and be healthier as a result. Um, and he admits that indigenous Americans, as he believed, uh, there isn't actually very good evidence for this at all, eight prisoners taken in battle. Um, and Montaigne says, well, look at the way we treat our prisoners. We torture them to death. We lock them up. We let them starve uh, in prison. We let them die of infectious disease. How are we more humane than they are? How are our practices any better than theirs? Um, he's not saying what they do is good. What he's saying is we are no better. That's the important point here. And he imagined Europeans as saying, these men, the Brazilians, are very savage in comparison of us. They must be either 
Either they must be, or else we are savages, for there is a vast difference betwixt their manners and ours. And of course, the thought that we might be savages is kind of hard for Europeans to bear, so we'll just project all these nasty fantasies onto the other, the non-European. Um, and so America as an image of utopia becomes an important idea, uh, drawing on golden age fantasies and so on. Um, uh, but it, America, because it challenges traditional wisdom, raises all kinds of questions. Maybe we don't need to live in the way that our ancestors had. Uh, and perhaps we could learn from other peoples. Instead of following our own traditions, we could look at other peoples and think there are many ways to live. Many kinds of possible good lives are available. And so travel and the understanding of a diverse range of other peoples, other customs, other religions and languages, and the newness of America, those two things together become key components of the utopian tradition. But the key thing here, as Bacon emphasised, and as is implicit in Montaigne's essay, is we could think this through for ourselves. Instead of just accepting tradition, instead of just accepting the Bible or Aristotle or Plato or whoever as the guide to the good life, perhaps we could figure it out again from first principles. And that, of course, is the key idea that underpins utopia. The work, the work of thinking about what would be better and then implementing it, is what makes it a utopia rather than just a paradise, a land of cocaine, a golden age, whatever. Um, and it's interesting again to think about the garden here. For Montaigne, cultivation is corruption. Unspoiled nature is paradise and only unspoiled nature. And Bacon, of course, has the opposite view. Humans can take their reason and apply it to what he called the relief of man's escape. And a garden becomes the very emblem of utopia for Bacon, as we've seen in earlier lectures. Particularly, we saw it in this book, in The New Atlantis, published posthumously in 1627. It describes, it's a traveller's tale again, so it's directly indebted to Moore for the, the literary form of the utopia. But it describes travellers visiting an imaginary island somewhere near America. The link to America is important. Um, and the island's most important institution is Solomon's House, a scientific research institution where extraordinary wonders have been achieved, all of which contribute to this relief of man's estate, which Bacon is promoting. And of course, the most important, and I've shown this picture several times in earlier lectures, is this fabulous botanic garden where all kinds of new fruits and flowers and so on have been created. Uh, and the strawberry, big enough to go in a wheelbarrow, is the emblem of the notion of the improvement of nature to serve human needs better. And so in a very important sense, gardens, this is the Oxford Botanic Garden where I began this whole story, gardens are a criticism of nature. By gardening, we kind of imply there's something wrong with nature. It's in some sense deficient, inadequate. And utopias are the same. If nature was good enough, as Montaigne implies, we would just leave things alone. And it would be like the Garden of Eden, like the land of cocaine. There would be no need, no necessity, no work. Everything would be fine. And the fact that we feel the need to improve the world is, of course, a criticism of nature, of what is given in nature. And that puts utopianism in conflict with some important strands in European thinking, most obviously with what is called natural theology. This is uh, particularly strong in Britain, but it's a widespread idea uh, across Europe in particular, perhaps slightly stronger in the Protestant than Catholic churches. But this is the kind of founding text of the British tradition, the wisdom of God manifested in the works of the creation by John Ray, the first person to really study botany systematically at the University of Cambridge. And Ray's argument is very simple. He says, when we look at nature, we look at plants and animals, they have an air of 
contrivance about them. They are purposeful. They have been made for a purpose. Animals are made to eat, to survive, to reproduce, to pass on and preserve their kind. Plants have the same kinds of contrivance. And because of this, we must assume an intelligent designer produced them. Uh, because where we see contrivance, we want a contriver. That's a very important point. And the second part of this argument, which is even more important for a Christian, is that it's not just any old intelligence, not any old creator, but the God of Christianity, the God who loves us, who cares about us, who sent his only begotten son to die and redeem us. And we can tell it's that God, not some random you know, pagan deity, because of the goodness of nature. So the uh, the benevolence of nature, the way it all works for the good of each thing. So Ray and his successors endlessly talk about how lovely it is that the flowers need the bees. Uh, the bees get food, the flowers get fertilized, and we get beauty and we get honey from the bees and we get, uh, you know, the lovely smells of flowers in our gardens. It all works together in a lovely, harmonious picture. And isn't God wonderful? That whole tradition is, of course, called into question by gardening, by the assumption that nature could be improved upon. And there's a, you know, if God made nature, there's something kind of impious about this. There's a famous old joke about a vicar saying to his gardener, uh, looking at the beautiful garden and saying, isn't it wonderful what you and the Lord have achieved here together? To which the gardener responds, yeah, well, you should have seen it when the Lord had it to himself. Um, so, you know, gardeners are in a sense critics of natural theology, regardless of who employs them. And that uh, that vision of nature as good has another strand in European thinking, which is very important by the 19th century, which is part of Enlightenment thinking. Um, and if we look at this quote from Antoine Claire Thibadieu, who was one of the deputies of the French National Convention, which is formed after the French Revolution, he called on all men to consider the great and magnificent spectacle of the power of nature, the variety of her productions, and the harmony of her phenomena. She is the source of good laws, of useful arts, of the sweetest pleasures, and of happiness. And this enlightened view of nature, of course, some uh, enlightened uh, thinkers were uh, traditional Christians, some were outright atheists, and there are all points in between. But in many of them, you get this sense that nature is kind of being called in to do the work that God used to do. So the same vision of natural theology is there, but God has been dropped from the picture. Nature herself is the source of good laws, of happiness, of moral guidance for human beings. And if we could just live in a more natural way, we would be happier, we would be better off. That's the claim being implied here. And of course, that doesn't last. By the 19th century, of course, that is being challenged very strongly from many courses, but particularly by evolution. We think of Charles Darwin, who is only the most famous of the 19th century evolutionists, and not the only one. He just says the face of nature may be compared to a yielding surface with 10,000 sharp wedges packed close together and driven inwards by incessant blows, sometimes one wedge being struck and then another with greater force. It's a very violent picture the face of nature having wedges pounded into it. This, of course, is the relentless, remorseless competition of natural selection, every organism striving to maximise its chances of survival and of reproducing. Uh, and from that intense competition, that's the force that drives uh, evolution, the force of natural selection. And Darwin describes this as the war of nature, which is powered, as he bluntly says, by famine and death. Uh, so the notion of a benevolent nature, either an enlightened nature or a naturally the natural theological vision of nature, these ideas are challenged very strongly by evolution. So let's think a little bit more about evolution. 
and we're going to think about its relation to ethics. This famous uh, 19th century caricature recalls uh, a clash, I'm sure you've heard some version of this story, between Samuel Wilberforce uh, on the left here, the Bishop of Oxford, a man renowned for his eloquence. He was known as Soapy Sam because of the smooth delivery. Uh, and Thomas Henry Huxley on the right, who is always known as Darwin's bulldog, uh, a very uh, aggressive and uh, witty com uh, supporter of his friend Charles Darwin's theories. Um, and there is a very famous story uh, about the clash between these two at the Oxford meeting of the British Association in 1860, where you know Wilberforce is supposed to have summed up his criticisms of evolution by turning to Huxley and saying, "So, is it from his? Was it from his grandmother or his grandfather's side that he claimed to descend from an ape?" Um, and the standard version of the story is there's a sort of sharp intake of breath because it's terribly rude to say things about people's grandmothers. If you're a Victorian gentleman, Huxley muttered to the man sitting next to him, "The Lord hath delivered him." In to my hands, gets to his feet and eloquently smashes Soapy Sam's argument. And, you know, he would rather be descended from an ape than a man who would use his intelligence to bring ridicule to bear on serious scientific discussions, blah, blah, blah. It's a great story. Almost all the canonical details are not found in any contemporary account. They're nearly all from Huxley's memoirs written 30 years later. So we can be slightly skeptical about what actually happened. But it's become iconic because it, it summarizes the sense of a clash between science and religion caused by evolution. So many things wrong with that story. But by a happy coincidence, next year's lectures by me will be all about Darwin and Darwinism, so you'll hear a different version of that story if you stick around. For the moment though, I want to focus on Huxley, and I want to use gardens again to think about this question of the relationship between evolution and ethics. So Huxley in 1890 bought himself a house in Eastbourne, uh, just overlooking the South Downs. And he looked out of his window and he looked at the, the Downs and the natural landscape. And a few years later, he published an essay. He first gave it as a lecture and then published it called Evolution and Ethics. And he starts by talking about this ancient landscape, uh, uh, how it might have been the same thousands and thousands of years earlier when the Romans first arrived. Um, and he talks about the fact that under this uh, landscape, under the, the grass and so on, is the chalk. And Huxley had earlier written a famous essay called On a Piece of Chalk, where he had explained to an audience of working men that a little piece of chalk used for drawing on a blackboard was taken from the, the vast white cliffs, the very emblem of Englishness. Um, and that actually what that piece of chalk reveals is what has sometimes been called the most frightening fact in geology. You look at these tiny little people atop that huge cliff, those endless layers going down, the chalk is actually the skeletons of minute organisms, microscopic organisms. It's a little bit like coral. And what it is is a record of countless millions of deaths, corpses heaped on each other, and the individual organisms are minute. So we're looking at billions of deaths to create these layers of chalk. And of course, millions of years of time to build up those layers. And of course, the chalk is only one thin layer of the strata that underpins Britain, that literally lies beneath our feet everywhere we go. And Huxley uses it to unpack the vision of history, which is beginning to haunt uh, um, the Victorians. So as we know, the Victorians are basically models. They're forever digging and burrowing. Um, they're making railways, they're making canals, they're digging quarries and mining for more coal and so on. And everywhere they dig, they find fossils. Um, this is the Museum of Practical Geology in uh, London, where Huxley worked. And those cabinets, row upon row upon row, contain fossils, records of death, um, and of course records of extinction. Thinking back to America and European travels and so on, 
one of the things that happens as Europeans travel further and further around the world is it becomes undeniable that most of the things that they find in the fossil record are now extinct. As the world becomes better known, they have left no trace behind them. The dinosaurs are only the most dramatic example of that for the Victorians. So there's no possibility that they've survived in some corner of the world we don't know about. So we have to deal with the fact of extinction. And of course, uh, when we think about um, extinct life in the past, uh, we think about the drama of the past, the competition. This is an early picture that tries to recreate the Iguanodon, the second species of dinosaur ever mentioned. I have to uh, bring this one in because the Iguanodon was found a few yards up the road from here, a few miles up the road by a man who lived in Lewis, my hometown, uh, Gideon Algernon Mantell. Um, and as I say, only the second species of dinosaur ever found. But the dinosaurs are particularly dramatic illustration that life was very different in the past. There was the endless brutality and competition, everything, eating everything. But at the end of it, all we have is extinction. No trace left um, of those creatures or of most of the creatures that have ever lived on the earth. Um, and so, of course, the frightening fact for geologists uh, which geologists have pressed on Victorians, uh, their fellow Victorians, is that pretty much everything that's ever lived on the earth is extinct. Um, and uh, that throughout most of the history of the earth, there were no human beings here. And those two facts together make it very hard to sustain a faith in the literal truth of the Bible in the conventional accounts of Christianity. If God made the earth as a habitat for humanity, why did he take so long to get the tenants in? This is a kind of short version of what's bothering the Victorians about all this. Uh, and instead, what we have is that record of death, of destruction, of Darwin's war of nature, famine and death, uh, extinction, destruction. The whole world seems kind of pitiless and pointless, uh, very unlike the kind of visions of either natural theology or the Enlightenment version of nature. And yet Huxley thinks you can find hope, even in this bleak vision, which he briefly introduces, he thinks there's something we can point to that gives us hope for the future. Three or four years have elapsed since the state of nature to which I have referred was brought to an end, so far as a small patch of the soil is concerned, by the intervention of man. The patch was cut off from the rest by a wall. Within the area thus protected, the native vegetation was, as far as possible, extirpated, while a colony of strange plants was imported and set down in its place. In short, it was made into a garden. I think it's obvious, just looking at this quote, how the language of British imperialism is central to this argument. The native vegetation was extirpated. A colony of strange plants was imported. This is the process of civilization. We end the state of nature, the warfare. We remove the indigenous plants and by implication as colonists, we, we remove or improve the indigenous people. Uh, and the gardening is a metaphor for colonialism, and both of them represent the triumph of humanity over nature, uh, of getting rid of that warfare of nature, which Darwin had so vividly described. Um, and of course, Huxley uh, explicitly says that his God contains the fruits of empire, exotic fruits and vegetables, which could not survive, except under conditions such as obtain in the garden because they've been refined by cultivation. These are precisely the kinds of fruit and vegetables that Montaigne is dismissing as evidence of our corrupt palate. For Huxley, they're the epitome of civilization. He's in Bacon's camp on this argument, clearly. The plants were as much works of the art of man as the frames and glass houses in which some of them are raised. So 
cultivated fruit and flowers are monuments to human civilization, like greenhouses, and like he says in the article, cathedrals or iron bridges or any of the things we build. These are all marks of human culture, human intervention. Greenhouses and cathedrals alike are, we call these things artificial, term them works of art or artifice, by way of distinguishing them from the products of the cosmic process, working outside man, which we call natural or works of nature. And the cosmic process is really Huxley's term for natural selection, for that relentless, remorseless uh, force that cares nothing for human intentions or human achievements or anything else. Uh, everything is simply battered and destroyed by it. Um, and he says, you know, everything we make, our gardens, our cathedrals, our houses, everything is endlessly battered down by the wind and the rain and by nature's jealousy. As he says, nature endeavoured to reclaim that which her child, man, has borrowed from her. And again, the gendering of nature is implicitly female. We've had Mother Nature mentioned several times, and man uh, is the child who has uh, kind of uh, rebelled against his mother by imposing his own standards of order and trying to build his own monuments in defiance of her um, kind of callous wishes. And Huxley uses two terms to describe the way that humans oppose the pitiless cosmic process. He calls it the horticultural process or the ethical process. And they are basically the same thing. For Huxley, gardening is applied ethics. That's how we impose a human scale of values, human ethical judgments on the world of nature. Rather than simply letting nature decide at random what lives and what dies, we decide what lives and what dies, which weeds to pluck out, which flowers to nourish, uh, and so forth. And uh, Huxley actually makes the analogy with the colony perfectly explicit in the article. I'm not reading this into it. He talks about how the native savages, whether they're animals, plants or people, would be replaced in a well-run colony by an earthly paradise, a true Garden of Eden in which everything served the well-being of the gardeners, not the well-being of the indigenous. This is a picture of the 19th century picture of the Garden of Eden, just to remind us that that strand has come up several times. But of course, the original Garden of Eden was a place where no work was done. That was the point. God had given us everything we wanted. And that is why uh, that would be true of the kingdom of heaven, of course, if we are moral enough to enter the kingdom of heaven, all well and good, but we can't create the kingdom of heaven. This is a real change to that. The Baconian vision, which Huxley is inheriting, the scientific vision of nature, is premised on the notion that we can make Eden or recreate Eden. We can put ourselves back there. Um, by improving nature to suit our ends, by overcoming the cosmic process with the horticultural one. As he says, his ideal colonial administrator would abolish the core struggle for existence of the state of nature and replace it with a state of art, where every plant and every lower animal should be adapted to human wants, managed to suit human ends. So it's somewhat ironic that... Uh, Although he is a very belligerent uh, and uh, combative supporter of Darwin, he privately described himself as Episcopagus or Bishop Eating, um, and he loved to pick a fight with a bishop on any possible occasion. Even though he's such a strong Darwinian, Huxley thinks that stopping natural selection is the key to paradise. Now, the idea of stopping natural selection is one that's being discussed in Britain at this time. But for most of his fellow Darwinians and for most people in Britain, stopping natural selection would be a bad thing. 
most people real felt that if you curb natural selection, that would inevitably lead to degeneration. Life would get too soft. Now, one of Huxley's pupils, E. Ray Lancaster, wrote a book called Degeneration, a chapter in Darwinism, where he compared um, human beings who had it too easy, the people of ancient Rome, where luxury and ease got the better of them and their empire collapsed, they were compared explicitly to parasites who had become so dependent on their host that they could no longer fend for themselves. And he worried that the British ruling class were going down the same path, that as the wealth of empire poured in, as in Huxley's garden, all those exotic fruits and vegetables from all over the empire, life would get too soft, it would get too easy. And one of the paradoxes of civilization for the Victorians was that as we got more civilized, we got more compassionate. And so we would look after the weak and the poor and the feeble um, and the people who really should have been eliminated by natural selection. We would allow them to survive. And because they were feckless and irresponsible, instead of being you know, hardworking middle class people, uh, that they would, of course, breed like rabbits and overrun the, um, the hardworking. And that, that vision of degeneration is one of the things that fuels eugenics. Um, they claim that we should be intervening and basically selectively breeding human beings, stopping the unworthy from breeding and encouraging the best people to breed more. Limitless problems with that argument, obviously. But what's interesting is that Huxley is not having a bar of this. He does not uh, embrace eugenics, even though he understands the argument. And he says that for it to work, people would have to eliminate the natural affection and sympathy which binds society together. And without those instincts, there is no conscience nor any restraint on the conduct of men. So if we were callous enough to condemn to death those who we think are weak or feeble or whatever, then we would lose our very humanity. And the very thing that makes society worth preserving is thrown away. So for him, you know, the, 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 the possibility of degeneration is a price we have to pay in order to remain human. So how are we to survive? I mean, he says that there cannot be a utopia in his view despite inheriting the Bacanian tradition, because ultimately human nature is flawed. But of course, for Huxley, human nature is not a result of any uh, uh, religious flaw or anything else. The, the traditional explanations are largely discarded. What he says is that uh, natural selection has fine-tuned people, like every other animal, to maximise our own pleasure with no thoughts for society as a whole. That is their inheritance, he said, human's inheritance, from the long series of ancestors, human and semi-human and brutal. And because our pre-human ancestors have bequeathed us their violent and selfish, innate tendency to self-assertion, uh, we all fight for what we want, our ancestors did. Uh, that is how we've succeeded in evolutionary terms. That is, as it were, how the British come to rule the largest empire the world has ever seen. Um, and that's something we're never going to be able to shake off. That, he said, was the reality at the bottom of the doctrine of original sin. So he's offering an evolutionary explanation of original sin, uh, and the naturalizing of ethics is a key part of what he's trying to do here. Um, so what can we do? Given this innate flaw, all we can do, he says, is follow a course of conduct which is in all respects opposed to that which leads to success in the cosmic struggle for existence. So the very things that made our brutal ancestors successful are the things we need to resist. Selfishness, violence, aggressiveness, uh, you know, and so on. And in fact, he basically says, you just follow prevailing ethical standards, including those of modern religions, because because all ethics have evolved uh, through uh, through evolutionary process, then basically 
we uh, there's a lot in common between the world's different religions and philosophies. We can just pick out the kind of golden strand that unites them all, uh, and we can live by those rules and try and be better than our brutal animal natures make us. Um, but at the end of the day, he says there's no uh, there's no final victory over nature. Nature will eventually batter down our monuments, including our ethical ones. We just have to do the best we can for as long as we can. We must struggle continuously against the cosmic process, cherishing the good, facing evil with stout hearts set on diminishing it. Um, and it's interesting that, you know, for all his Episcopagus habits, uh, you can imagine a great many, you know, Victorian vicars just nodding in agreement at reading these words. You pull up the weeds of selfishness and violence. We cultivate our better instincts. We struggle on because that's what makes us human. That's what keeps us going. That's the end of Huxley's argument. So I want to come back to Silent Running now and look at the film again, kind of with the help of the utopian tradition and with Huxley's vision of naturalized ethics to see whether we can see different things in the film than perhaps are there at first glance. When uh, Lowell is arguing with his shipmates at the beginning, he brings the fresh vegetables into the ship and starts cooking them and they'll go, oh, that stuff stinks, why do you have to eat that? And he dismisses what they eat as dried synthetic crap. Um, and when they say, well, what's so good about food that's come out of the dirt, as they put it, he tells them it's nature's greatest gift, to which one of them comments, well, to a celibate, maybe. Um, but it's interesting that he goes on and on about his passion for nature, but Lowell is not Mr. Natural. He's a gardener. He's a cultivator. He says, I grew it. I picked it. I fixed it. And there are numerous shots in the uh, in the film of these forests, in fact, have beds of fruit, vegetables like this growing. This is a garden. This is not nature. And Lowell has this moment of self-disgust when he's all on his own and he says to the drones that he's, he realizes he's been eating the dried synthetic crap, uh, which he presents to to to, um, to despise so much. Um, and he says to the drones, let's go to the forest and get some real food. But what he really means is let's go to the garden and get the artificially cultivated food, which I have prepared to suit my palate. Um, and the garden depends on advanced technology. I mean, it's on a spaceship in some kind of artificial dome, which by some magic allows in sunlight while keeping out cosmic radiation and so on. None of that is explained in the film. Um, but when we see him gardening, there are high-tech lighting here. He suddenly notices, oh, we're a long way from the sun. It's a bit dark for the plants. He's not a very convincing botanist, but as I say, let's, let's leave all that aside. But of course, the technology that the garden relies on most of all is the drones. Uh, so it's not nature. This is a garden, a garden dependent on advanced technology. Um, and when he teaches the drones uh, to garden, uh, he has this little toy watering can, uh, which he, he teaches them how to water the plants. And the final image of the film shows the drone, the little drone is on his own holding the watering can as he drifts off into space on its own. It's a kind of heart-rending motion. And Trumpel says that the kind of appeal of the film is that image of the watering can. It's the thing that everybody takes away from the film with them thinking about this image. But of course, this is another advanced technology for gardening. This is as artificial as a spaceship or a cathedral or anything else. This is how we intervene in nature and improve it because we think nature is deficient in some ways. It doesn't give us what we want. Why doesn't Lowell stay with his garden? Um, why doesn't he stay and look after it? Well, the plot device is that he doesn't want any of the other humans to know that it exists, so he wants to protect it from them. But I think it's also very clear that he recognises he's not moral enough uh, to re-enter the Eden that he's created. He actually cannot forgive himself for murdering the other members of the crew, and he talks about this in the film. Um, only the pure of heart can enter Eden, uh, and the pure of heart turns out to be the last drone. 
the only person who is not tainted by sin uh, by that evolutionary heritage of self-assertion. Um, so Lowell recognises that he's forgotten that natural affection and sympathy, which Huxley says is what makes human society work. He's failed to make the moral judgments to choose right from wrong, uh, which is what makes uh, what makes us human. It's the only thing humans can do that nature can't do, um, and he's failed, and that's why I think he can't um, stay with his garden at the end of the film. So where does that leave us? The robot on his own in the garden. One solution to the environmental crisis, I suppose, is to recognise that nature would be better off without us. Uh, that we just, you know, we seem hell-bent on extinct, driving ourselves to extinction. Maybe we should just do that as quickly as we can, leave the other species in peace. Um, I personally don't find that a very appealing prospect. Um, and if we're not going to do that, we have to do something different. We have to think about what it's going to be. Um, the image of the Earth from space, of course, is one of the things that fuels modern environmentalism. Again, this is another bit of an irony here because it's a very high-tech image taken by NASA. But this is one of the things that inspires modern environmentalism. And the first Earth Day is just a couple of years before Silent Running is made. There's actually a shot in the film of Lowell looking through a telescope at the Earth. And the image that he sees is, in fact, one of the NASA photos, one of these blue marble photos of the Earth in space. So the link to the NASA and space and the space program and the environmental movement is made subtly but unmistakably in the film. And of course, some environmentalists in the 70s and ever since have said, well, the solution is we go back to nature. Uh, and I, what I've tried to argue here is that, that I'm not sure that's even coherent. I don't know what that means. Um, but I don't think that's an option at all. Um, if we're going to survive as a species, we have to just face up to the fact that we're gardeners. The gardeners of planet Earth. And the question before us is, what kind of gardeners are we going to be? Uh, and I think that uh, one of the images that comes to me, one of the descendants of the drones, of course, is Dear Old Wally here. Um, again, one of the greatest films of all time. I mean, not just the Citizen Kane of children's films. It's just another Citizen Kane in my book. But watch it for yourself and decide. And of course, Wally's a gardener. <laughs> Wally finds the last plant or what might be the last plant and nurtures it and protects it and persuades the humans that they have to come back to the earth and take care of it. The earth's in trouble. It needs our help, as one of the humans says at the end of the film, and they come back to be gardeners. And actually the captain of the ship says to the kids, you're going to be farmers. That's what we have to contribute, the artificial world, the applied ethics of gardening. We can, of course, choose and we have to choose what kind of gardeners we're going to be. I'm, you know, busy rewilding my garden at the moment, which is mostly indolence, partly to do with having a bad back and a bad shoulder, but partly about planting wildfires to encourage pollinators, reducing the amount of, you know, getting rid of any chemicals and fertilizers, synthetics and so on. Um, we have to think about sustainability and balance and so on, but it's all gardening. Even rewilding is gardening. We decide what lives, what dies. When I pull up the bindweed and nurture the wildflowers, I'm making a gardener's choice and we have no option but to make those choices. And the thought I just want to leave you with is maybe the robots and maybe all kinds of technologies are important. And I think that's one of the things that we perhaps need to take from silent running amongst all the other things is that environmentalism and the back to nature philosophy can often make us hostile to technology. And I think we have to judge each technology in terms of how does it help us garden? Some of it is bad. I think, you know, certain chemicals we definitely need to get rid of. They're killing bees and so on. But some of it's good. Um, and having an open mind about technology and thinking about how we apply it to the problems of applied ethics, the problem of gardening, 
is what I think I want to take away from this film. Thank you for listening.